We uh, continue our study of the uh, precious uh, little New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, Today, we will uh, finally complete the message uh, on uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, entitled, Religion of Works or Relationship with Christ? I'd like to begin with a brief review of the two truths we gleaned from Philippians 3.1, which you'll find near the bottom of the first page of your notes. So we're going to skip over the introduction, the historical context, the relevance for today. All of that we have adequately covered over the last uh, two weeks, uh, and we covered this material last week, but I do want to briefly review as we uh, then look on at verses 2 and 3. Notice how the verse reads, uh, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Uh, the first truth we glean from this verse is Christian joy is the surpassing delight in my relationship with Christ that is unrelated to the circumstances of life. Christian joy is the surpassing delight of my relationship with Christ that is unrelated to the circumstances of life. Do not miss the fact this verse was written by Paul after he had spent four years in prison. He was still in prison. He did not know if he would be released or he would be executed for his faith in Christ. Yet 16 different times in just four little chapters, he mentions the word joy or rejoice. Also do not miss the fact he is writing to believers in Philippi who we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 were suffering object poverty and severe persecution for their faith in Christ. Therefore, when Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord, it is rather obvious the joy he is talking about is not based on good circumstances, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, knowing Jesus belonging to Jesus, being with Jesus now and forever gives a joy even in the worst of circumstances. Not a joy that dismisses pain, but a joy that runs deeper than pain. Christian joy is the surpassing delight in my relationship with Christ that is unrelated to circumstances. The second truth we glean from verse 1 last Sunday, is we must be diligent, therefore, to safeguard our relationship with Christ from anything that would take our focus off Christ and rob us of our joy in Him. Christianity was never meant to be a routine to endure, but a relationship to enjoy. Christianity was never meant to be a routine to endure, but a relationship to enjoy. We closed last Sunday by looking at Christ's letter uh, to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Uh, You remember that although Jesus commended this church 
for very, very much, uh, he discovered a serious heart defect. They did not love him as they once did. And with a broken heart, Jesus tells them, you left your first love. Jesus is saying, you became so distracted by other things, you neglected your relationship with me. And you have failed to give me the one thing I want most. Your affection. Your passion. Your devotion. Your love. Your worship. And beloved, we must be diligent to safeguard the priority of our relationship with Christ. Because if we do not, there will be a slow and almost imperceivable erosion in heartfelt devotion for Christ. As the beauty and value of Jesus diminishes in your eyes, it is inevitable that other things are going to become more important. As other things become more important, temptation will become more attractive. And never forget, at the heart of all sin is simply valuing anything or anyone more than Jesus. Compromise, apathy, and complacency sets in. We still go through the motions, but we've left the wonder and excitement of our relationship with Jesus. And never forget, never forget, beloved, only when our love burns for Christ will our light shine for Christ. The only Christianity that is contagious and spreads is the one when we are lovesick for Jesus. Now turn your notes over and look at Philippians 3, verse 2. And here comes a warning uh, from the Apostle Paul. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of, false, of the false circumcision. That's, that literally would be translated uh, mutilation. Our English Bibles put false circumcision, but the word Paul used is mutilation, referring uh, to circumcision. Now, we saw over the last couple of weeks, this is referring to what group of false teachers? Judaizers, the Judaizers, who were Paul's greatest enemies. And what did the Judaizers teach? They taught that Jesus was the true Messiah. They taught that He died on the cross, that He rose again from the dead. They taught it was necessary to believe on Him for salvation. But they also taught that before a Gentile could be saved, he had to become a Jew. All males had to be circumcised, which was required for salvation. And all, male and female, had to observe the law of Moses. They tried to mix grace and works, and folks, the two simply do not mix. Uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 5, where Paul makes this very, very clear. Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 2, 3, and 4. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And, of course, that's in the context. 
if you receive circumcision with this idea that through your efforts, through your works, through whatever ritual requirements, you can earn your way into heaven, he says, Christ will not profit you. And then verse 3, and I testify again uh, to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, when he says fallen from grace, he's not talking about a person that's saved and then he falls from his salvation. He's saying if you seek salvation through works, then you have fallen off the road of grace that leads to true salvation. And so Paul very clearly here states that grace and law, grace and works do not mix. Uh, look, look now in your notes at the tr- two truths uh, we can take from verse 2. The first truth, beware, used three times in verse 2, means to be on the constant looking out for. We must constantly look out for any teaching that puts a plus sign after Christ in their teaching about salvation. And many do this. The Mormons do this. Jehovah Witnesses do this. There are many areas of Catholicism that do this, where it's attached to rituals and requirements and works and sacraments. A Christian's good works are the results of his faith, not the basis of his salvation. So again, we must constantly look out for any teaching that puts a plus sign after Christ in their teaching about salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Passage that's very familiar to most of you. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul wrote, for by grace you have been saved. And what is grace? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Putting your trust in Him. And that not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God. Not as a result of works. That no one should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you can't put a plus sign after Christ. We put our trust in Christ alone for salvation. And then as we come to know Christ and these effects of change in our hearts, yes, good deeds, good works will follow. We will let our light shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Look at uh, the book of Titus. Look at Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3 that emphasizes this same truth. Titus 3, I'll begin reading at verse uh, 4, and we'll go through verse 9. He says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Who saved us? Christ saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His what? Mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Talking about the fact that when the Holy Spirit enters a believer, when he puts his trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit effects change, a change of nature, a change of heart. We'll talk more about that a little bit later this morning. It talks about the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his, notice, grace, not works, his grace, we might be made heirs, 
according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. Notice, the good deeds, the good works, what they follow the salvation. These things are good and profitable for men, but shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Look at the uh, second truth uh, that we can glean. Notice how Paul describes the Judaizers. It's very revealing. First, he calls them dogs. Uh, You say, what in the world is he doing there? It's interesting, in the Greek language, there are two different words for dog. Uh, The one word would... uh, be the thought of your, your pet that uh, you love and you endure, that you're a companion. The other word for dog talks about these scavengers uh, that, that were mean, they were nasty, they were dangerous. And that's the word Paul uses. So he, he, what he's saying is, notice in your notes, they're unclean outcasts who carry disease and are dangerous. Therefore, you're to avoid these guys at all costs. Any teacher that puts a plus sign after Christ for salvation, where he's saying there's something you have to do to earn God's approval, to earn your place in heaven. He says, they're just dangerous dogs. They carry disease, and they're dangerous, and you need to avoid them. And then notice he calls them evil workers. And this is very, very interesting because they actually did many, many good deeds. Although they thought they were doing good, The fact is they were working evil because they believed they could earn God's approval by their own self-effort, which is the epitome of pride. And that's why God says many of these, what people would look at outwardly and say, wow, how wonderful, what a good work. God looks at it and says evil because that's motivated with them thinking they can earn their way into my grace. They can earn their way into heaven, which is the epitome of pride. Therefore, they were on a one-way street to hell, as well as all who follow their false teaching. These are the folks that Jesus was talking about. They're the types of folks that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7. Uh, We looked at this a couple weeks ago, where at Judgment Day, they say, uh, Lord, Lord, speaking to Jesus, Lord, Lord. I mean, look, look at all that we did for you. I mean, we did this in your name. We did this in your name. And what does Jesus say? He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. He said, I never knew you. Never knew you. Because their righteousness was as filthy rags. And we cannot earn our way into heaven through our deeds, through our righteousness, through our efforts. It's by God's grace alone. And then look at the third word that he uses, mutilation. As I mentioned earlier, our English Bibles uh, interpret that false circumcision, but the actual word Paul uses is mutilation. Circumcision was meant to be an outward sign of the inward reality of a circumcised, cleansed heart. But all they had was a physical surgery that was nothing more than mutilation. That's what... uh, Paul is saying, let me read for you uh, these last two verses in Romans 2 that make this uh, very clear. In other words, Paul is, is pointing out, even in the Old Testament, circumcision was meant to be an outward sign of an in re- reality, a circumcised heart that was devoted and would love God. Uh, Romans 2, 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. So circumcision, again, was meant to be an outward sign of an inward reality. Now look at your notes at Philippians 3.3. And that's, this is what I've been excited to get to the last uh, three weeks. Now he contrasts the false, the counterfeit, with the real deal. And he says, for we are the true circumcision. We're the true believers. We're the authentic believers. And then he gives a definition of a true believer. He gives a description, character. He says, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now look at that first point. As I mentioned earlier... This verse is possibly the most concise definition of a Christian found in the New Testament as it highlights three characteristics which verify the authenticity of a person's salvation. But first, I want us to look at some characteristics that are not appropriate tests to verify a person's salvation. And the first one is a past profession of faith. In other words, these are things that you don't want to use to try to verify your salvation. A past profession of faith. This may surprise you, but absolutely nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament does it suggest that a person ever look back to a past profession of faith to verify their salvation. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not to minimize the importance of a profession of faith. Romans 10.10 reads, For with the heart man, what, believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he what? Confesses or professes, resulting in salvation. The point is simply this. There are many professions of faith that never reflect a change of heart. Paul wrote about those who profess to know Christ, but they deny Him by their deeds. Jesus never said, you'll know them by what they say, by what they profess. He said, you'll know them by their what? By their fruits. What verifies salvation is not a profession of faith, but a changed life. Another false proof of salvation, the next one, is living by a moral code. Living by a moral code. Now, yes, a Christian lives by a moral code, the moral code of the Bible. But he does so through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that works from the inside, what? Out. It's the Holy Spirit that provides the motivation, the energy, the empowerment. But there are many, many, many who strive to live by a high moral code who have never come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The Judaizers lived by a high, high moral code. Some do out of a sheer fear for God. Others feel pressured to conform to the standards of their peer group. Children often live moral lives to please their parents and to avoid punishment. And tragically, there are many who believe they can earn their way into heaven by living by some sort of moral code. Some sort of rules and regulations. But the Bible is clear. We are not justified by our works. But by placing our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Another false proof of salvation 
is knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth. Now again, please understand, no one can be saved without knowledge of the truth. You have to know the facts about Jesus, but knowing the facts is not enough. James chapter 2 verse 19, you say, you say, you say, you profess you have faith because you believe in God, you believe there's one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. Knowledge of the truth must, by, must what? It must be acted upon in trust and commitment. Listen to Hebrews 4 2. It says, The word they heard, that they heard, that they knew, it did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united with faith by those who heard. See, sadly, there are many who possess a head knowledge about Jesus. They'll give intellectual assent concerning the facts of Christ, but that truth, that knowledge has never possessed their hearts. It's just up here. Now, let's hit the last two proofs of salvation of false proofs, false proofs of salvation together. And that's religious activities and service in the name of Christ. Again, a large part of a Christian's life will be ministry and service for Christ. But at the same time, there are a host of people sitting in our churches who only have an external form of religion without the inward reality of salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 5 refers to those who hold to a form, an outward, an external form of godliness, but they deny the power. Jesus said to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3, 1, I know your deeds. I know your works. I know your efforts. I know everything that you say you do in service to me. And then he says, but you know what? Here's reality. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. See, here was a church that had an external form of religion, but they never had the inward reality of salvation. In other words, these were folks who went to church, who sang songs of praise. They tithed. They got involved in all types of ministry, but they were lost church members. Their names were on the church roll, but their names were not in the Lamb's book of life. Now going back to Philippians 3.3, which provides a simple definition of a true believer, we can answer the next question in your sermon notes. What are the marks of a true Christian? What are the marks of a true Christian? This verse mentions three, and notice, and this is extremely important, all the marks are internal. Everything Paul mentions is, relates to the inside, to the heart of man. And that's why authentic Christianity can never be counterfeited. Because you can put a show on the outside, but you don't have the ability to transform and change the inside. So the first mark of a true Christian, look at it with me. The first mark of a true Christian is worship in the Spirit of God. Worship in the Spirit of God. Worship of Christ produced by the Holy Spirit 
who not only takes up residence in the believer's heart, but transforms the believer's heart. The word worship is latruo in the Greek. It is not the uh, normal word that's used for worship, which is proskuneo. And this word refers to the living, listen now, the simplest way I know how to put it, to the living of the whole of one's life as an expression of worship and service to Christ. That's what that word, latruo, when you boil it down, means. It simply means I live the whole of my life as an expression of worship and service to Christ. So we're not just talking about singing songs of praise in a church service. We're talking about how you live your life and how you live that life, not just on Sunday, but seven days a week in every area of your life. And also notice, and this is a key, it is worship in the Spirit of God. It is worship in the Spirit of God. See, there are many people, and there, and there may be many sitting right here who believe. And many people believe when a person is converted to Christ, their sins are forgiven. And that's true. There are many people that believe, well, when a person is converted, then the Holy Spirit is simply added to their life. And yes, the Holy Spirit is added to your life. But folks, there's much, much more to conversion than that. And it's so crucial for us to understand this. Yes, again, sins are forgiven. And yes, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the believer's heart. But folks, when the Holy Spirit comes, He effects a change of heart. And if there's no change of heart, He never came. You never really trusted and you have a false assurance of salvation. In other words, when the Holy Spirit... You know, this should not surprise us. What was our previous book study? It was the book of Hebrews. As we got into uh, uh, chapters, especially 8, 9, and 10, it was all about the new covenant that was cut for us in Christ. Remember we said that word covenant, the thought is like a person's last will and testament, which Jesus, again, cut by His blood on Calvary's cross. And there are three fundamental promises to the new covenant. And I hope you remember what they are. I often refer to these at the Lord's Supper. The first one is pardon from sin. He said, I will remember your sins no more. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And now forever, I will have a disposition of love for you. Doesn't mean God will not correct you. Doesn't mean He won't chasten you. But from that point on, he'll never condemn. He'll never punish. Everything's for your benefit, for your profit, even the discipline, even the correction. And what's the second promise? A new heart. That's right, a new heart. He said he would take out that hard, stony, godless heart. And he would give you a new heart. A heart that hungers and thirsts for God. A heart that loves the Father, that longs to be like Jesus Christ, and a heart that is energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the third promise of the new covenant, that we would become His temple, that He would reside 
in us, too energized, too empowered. Now, folks, this is why Jesus used the term born again to describe conversion. When a person is converted, when a person comes to know Christ, a new spiritual person is born that did not exist before. Paul used the term new creation. Now, please understand, we still battle with and sometimes are defeated by this unredeemed flesh with its selfish desires and its sinful thinking patterns. But the inner man, the heart, the real me has been changed and is energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit to renew the mind and overcome the lust of the flesh. Look at the next points in your notes to see how the believer's changed heart impacts his relationship with Christ. Once a person is converted, sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit comes, takes, Holy Spirit changes his heart. Now, what's true of that person? Now Christ has my attention because he is the goal of my heart. I mean, for me, I came to know Christ September 20th, 1970. Prior to that, Jesus was not my goal. I was in rebellion. I was lost. But when I was converted, it changed the whole direction of my life. It changed my want to, my appetites, my desires. And Christ has my attention because He's the goal of my life. Now Christ has my adoration because He's the joy of my heart. Christ has my affections because He's the love of my heart. And Christ has my availability, or you might want to say allegiance, because He is the Lord of my heart. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in. That's the uh, the change that He brings to that believer's heart. He gives that believer a heart whose one goal, whose one joy, whose one love, whose one Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when you examine the Christianity you profess, when you examine the Christianity you profess to determine if it's the real deal or not, you need to ask yourself, is Jesus the goal of my heart? Is He the joy of my heart, the love of my heart, the Lord of my heart? Yes, I may struggle, and I may have ups and downs, but can I, can, I, can, do, can I say that deeper than all of that is a love for the Father again, that longing to be like Jesus, to be freed from this flesh, to know perfect purity and holiness. And I know that energizing and motivating power of the Holy Spirit. True believers worship Christ, is what Paul is saying. Their hearts overflow with worship because their hearts have been changed by the Spirit of God. And folks, that can never be counterfeited. Look at the second mark of a true believer. I love this. He says, glory 
They glory in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? They glory in Christ. That word glory would better be translated boasting. They, they boast in Christ Jesus. The person, that next sentence, the person and work of Christ is the pride and joy of my life. And I give him all the credit for all that I am and all that I possess. That's the heart of a true believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. See, the true believer puts all the credit where the credit is due, which is all on Jesus Christ. The believer realizes, hey, I did absolutely nothing to win Christ's love. And there's nothing I can do to lose Christ's love. I realize that my relationship with Christ is a sheer gift of God's unmerited grace. When Jesus paid for my sin debt through his death on Calvary's cross, and he not only paid off my sin debt, he then rose again and he deposited into the account, into the life of Andy Merritt, all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. So is your boast in Christ alone? And let let me also mention, that we go back to this theme of joy. That that word that he uses for glory, that I said could be translated boasting, the, the word itself, actually it mixed in is this thought of, and best way to describe it, just a hilarious joy. Just hilarious joy. And that's going to be true of a believer when you realize, what I have was a gift. I didn't do anything to earn it. God gave it to me. And that just results in boasting and in joy. Look at the third mark of a true Christian. He puts no confidence in the flesh. It's obvious if I'm, putting my, if I'm boasting in Christ... I'm going to put no confidence in the flesh. See, I realize, a true believer realizes apart from Christ, I can do what? Nothing. Nothing. My confidence is not in my willingness or ability, but in God's willingness and ability. Now, it's God who is at work in me to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything that Andy Merritt could ever ask, think, or pray. How? According to that power that works in me as I worship in the Spirit. And as I boast and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Listen, folks. A true believer puts no confidence in the flesh To achieve salvation, sanctification, 
or satisfaction. Because he realizes his salvation, his sanctification, knowing satisfaction is all a gift of God, rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, as we wrap it up, what are the marks of a true believer? First, a life devoted to God, energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Second, boasting and rejoicing in Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient one, the one who brings joy to me. And so I live to what? Exalt Him. It's not about me. It is about Him. It goes back to what Paul said in uh, chapter 1. Here this man is in prison. And you're wondering, how is he praying? What's he thinking? And he tells us. He says, as I languish here in this prison, not knowing whether I'm going to live or die. He says, this is my earnest hope and expectation. That I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's authentic Christianity. That's the real deal. You know, I mentioned uh, some time ago, uh, talking about this eye of boasting, rejoicing, putting the focus on Christ. If you're a believer, God saved you to be a telescope and a microscope. You're to be a telescope by bringing Jesus up close and personal to those who only see Him at a distance. Talking about lost folks. And you're a microscope to reveal the greatness of the magnificence of Jesus to those who only see Him as so very small. That's why we live. That's why we live. And then the third mark, placing no confidence in the striving of my flesh, but trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for sanctification, and satisfaction. So we come down to this question as we close. Is the Christianity you profess the real deal? You may want to turn to this. I'll close with this passage. Romans 8. Romans 8. Let me just read two verses. 15 and 16. For you. He's talking about Authentic believers now. For you, those who put their trust. You have not received a spirit of slavery. Leading to fear. See, a true believer doesn't know fear. Why? Because you have been received... But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out what? Abba, Father. See, an authentic believer, his entire life is Godward. Being in God's family. Knowing God is his father. Jesus is his brother. The Holy Spirit is our 
empowerment. And then verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Are you right now experiencing the witness of God's Spirit? See, I personally believe if you're sitting there and you're the real deal, you're an authentic believer, what I've shared, it's, it's, it's wrong true. He says, yes, it's, and you, you may be struggling right now. Uh, you may have been recently defeated by the by that unredeemed flesh, but you know, you know that your heart loves Him, that your heart longs for Him, and that is the tenor and the direction and the character of your life. So is the Christianity you profess the real deal? Bow with me in prayer. Father, Think of Paul's words to the church at Corinth. Test yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Examine yourself. And Father, we live in a day and age, especially in the United States of America, where our churches have literally been infected by an easy believism. And Father, you know my heart, and I know your heart. There's no desire to disturb uh, a true believer's heart and cause them to question but Lord, there is definitely the desire to disturb anyone's heart who has a false assurance of salvation that has never truly come to know you. So Lord, if there is one that would fall into that category, bring them to the place we're like the publican. They just cry out, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Open their eyes to see the infinite beauty, glory of Jesus. Bring them to true trust and faith. And then, Lord, as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within their forgiven hearts, I praise you for the change that you will affect. And I trust their lives will always resound to the praise and glory of your grace. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. As we extend the invitation today, uh, this may be one of those you don't want to sing. Just let Andy sing. Just uh, take an opportunity to further reflect uh, to examine, uh, uh, to test. Uh, I, I would not encourage anyone 
to do anything necessarily quickly. You should mull over this, think over this truth. And, uh, and God, God to be faithful. God to be faithful to bear witness with your spirit that, yeah, what you have is the real deal. And God, but God to also be faithful to show you, if you ask him, that, no, you've been living with a false assurance of salvation. And you need to come to true faith in Jesus Christ. So I'll be standing here to welcome anyone that has a decision of any nature. Um, but I trust we'll all be looking uh, to God to shine His light into our hearts. And reveal whether we're authentic or counterfeit. And then put our trust in Him who came to this earth to die for you and to rise again to save you. So please stand as the invitation is extended.